Shalom and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm, and that our time on earth is short, and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we are joined by a friend of the show, Pastor Gary Durham. We're going to talk about salvation, or redemption, and sin. Welcome, Pastor Durham. Hey, welcome. It's good to be back. So today we want to talk about redemption, or salvation, and sin. And I think to do this, we need to go back and start at the beginning. What kind of God is doing the saving? Yeah, we're going to be talking about, as you said, J.D., we're going to be talking about soteriology, what we talk about in theology, the doctrine of how does God save us and and so on. And, of course, that also brings in a discussion of what we call harmartiology. It's a big word, I know, but it's just based on the Greek word harmartia, which basically is the general broadest word for sin, and it means the study of sin. What is sin? And that's what alienates us from God. And uh, and to really understand those things, though, most people want to start talking there. You have indicated correctly that we've got to go further back and talk about what is God like and uh, why did he create the kind of world he created? And uh, if we bear the Imago Day and we are creating his image, uh, what is it about us that it makes us capable of sin? And what is it about us? that needs to be saved, and uh, therefore, what is God saving? Because, I mean, all those questions come into, you know, really become the foundation upon which we answer questions like, well, what is a sin, Mm -hmm. and what is sin nature, and uh, and what what is God saving us from, and how does he save us, and why is the cross necessary? I mean, we could go to a thousand questions, as you know. But, But you're right. Let's go back, and let's go to your original question. Uh, I think you said, you know, what is this God like, you know, who is what? Doing the saving. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is the God of Abraham? Yeah. What is the God of Abraham? Well, when we go back and we take the whole of God's revelation of himself, because remember, we only know God because it reveals himself. And uh, we can't put God in a test tube and analyze him. Uh, you know, you, you can only analyze things by defining them, and you can only define things by limiting them. God cannot be limited, therefore we cannot know him that way. So the point is, is that God reveals himself to us, and uh, through the scriptures, he's revealed himself. And ultimately, the ultimate revelation, of course, of God is Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, the incarnation, the enfleshing of God. And God was expressed in his fullness with the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we need to remember that Jesus taught us something extremely important and validated it, that God is triune in nature, that he is Father, he is Son, and he's Holy Spirit. Jesus talked a lot about his Father. He talked about the fact that he was the Son who was equal with the Father. He said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And then he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He comes from the Father, and I'm going to send and proceeds through me, because I'm going to send him. And then he even talked about this relationship in the Trinity, and I don't have time to unpack that. But the point is, Jesus even left, and the last things he said was Trinitarian. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So he's emphasizing the Trinity again. So we as Christians understand that God is Trinity, he's triune, 
and uh, and maybe we need to define Trinity to start with if we're going to lay that as the foundation. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because there seems to be quite a bit of confusion about what does Trinity mean. Yes. I mean how can God be three people? Yeah, okay. Well, the point is, is that if you go back, and, and I want to keep this simple because when you get into Trinitarian theology, it gets really quite complex, but let's keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and we, we don't want to, you know, cloud everything by going back to all the councils and all the, everything they fought for to keep, uh, you know, what the apostles and what Jesus made clear in the scriptures. But the point is, is that God is one. You know, in fact, it's interesting that in that great passage, Hero Israel, the Shema, God is one. Uh, actually, when you, I, I, I was reading a Hebrew Bible one day, and I noticed that the Hebrew uh, rabbi, scribe, had translated into English, God is one, is the, as the word, God is unity. And I thought that was interesting he used that word, because that's really the meaning of the Hebrew word. And that, of course, has foreshadowing. It doesn't define anything, but it foreshadows what Jesus would teach, that God is a unity of persons. Now, the point is, is that God is one God. There's only one God. Mm-hmm. And, but within this one nature of God, there are three persons. Now, what we say in Trinitarian theology is that God is not one in the same way he's three, and he's not three in the same way he's one, because if he were, that's a contradiction. And we must lay as a foundation right up front because we're going to need this all the way through. Contradictions are not allowed by the nature of God because God is rational. He's the ultimate source of all rationality. And God does not allow contradictions to obtain, as we say. That means to actually be real, to come in, to actualize. So uh, God, if God, if we were saying God was one and three in the same way, that would be a contradiction and couldn't possibly be true. It's mm-hmm. like trying to say there's such a thing as a round square or there's such a thing as a married bachelor. It simply is irrational. And our rationality, while limited and while certainly not the limit of reality, uh, it is a reflection of God's unlimited rationality. And our rationality is something that he has shared with us in creation, a little piece of his rationality. Therefore, we can't invalidate true logical rationality without invalidating God, who is the source of that rationality. Therefore, so when we define the Trinity, we have to understand that God is one in nature. He's one in essence, and those are different words to try to say the same thing. He's one being, but within that being, his con- he is constituents that actually take on full personality. Now, uh, God so dwells in dimensions above us that his constituents take on full personality. Now, notice that we are constituent beings as well. Uh, We are not monotheists. We believe that man is diverse in nature. We believe that God formed man of the dust of the ground. Therefore, he has a material nature. Mm -hmm. He breathed into him the rock, the spirit, our pneuma, uh, our breath of life. And And then when those two join, it says man became a living soul. So soul is the union of spirit and body in man and, the, and produces actually a third entity in flesh spirit, which has its own characteristics. But the point is, is that in us, those constituents do not take on full person, separate personalities. But in God, he lives in dimensions so far above us that his constituents, which are all one, creating only one God, because there can only be one, nonetheless 
take on full personality in its Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, we don't, I don't have time to talk about the procession of the, fa- the Son from the Father and, and the Spirit from the Father and the Son and so on. But the point is, is that this Trinitarian understanding is that relationship begins in the nature of God. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going to begin laying the foundation for understanding salvation, soteriology, and even understanding what sin is, how we violate re- uh, relationship when it's given to his creatures. Well, that, uh, I guess, leads us up to the very next question. Now that we've defined who God is, and we've sort of touched on who we are. Mm-hmm. So, one, why did God create us? Because I think we need to talk about that from a relationship standpoint. Yeah, and I think to, that raises another question that, that's right behind that question, which actually precedes it, and that is this. Did God have a need to create? And the answer is no. Okay. Okay, yeah. and secondly, we could go further back and say, obviously, the if God is the only eternal, uncreated being and all other creatures had a beginning, which is what the Bible teaches, we are all contingent beings. He is non-contingent. He's necessary. Uh, and if he had not existed, nothing else could exist because everything else comes from him. He causes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore... Uh, we have to ask the question. We have to realize there had to be, and I'm going to use a humanistic, anth- what we call an anthropomorphism in theology. It just simply means we're going to talk in human terms. There had to be a time, although God doesn't dwell in time necessarily, although He can interact with time. Uh, there had to be a time when there was nothing but God, right? Because He's the only one who is eternal in the sense of eternity past and eternity forward. Therefore, there was a time when there was relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God is perfect, and that those relationships were perfect. They had no need. Therefore, God didn't need to create any, anybody or anything or any creature. So, But a line comes. The point is, is that here's where we learn something very profound that's going to take us all the way through. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is love, mm-hmm. divine love. Uh, what the scriptures would call agape. Uh, we anglicize it to agape, but it's uh, agape. And it's interesting that uh, that there is the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4 twice makes this statement, theos agape esten, theos agape esten. That's simply God, love, divine love is, and esten is emphatic there. And so it's the only statement in Scripture that says, I'm talking about essentially who and what God is. Uh, there are many statements about God's activities, uh, his, his, you know, his nature, uh, how he behaves, how he acts. You know, he is holy. He is all these things. But, but when John says, theos agape esten, he is saying this is essentially who God is in nature. And he, and he makes that statement twice. And that's an extremely important statement because it means that love is as eternal as God himself because the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always existed. They've always been in relationship, and the relationship has always been love. Therefore, love has always existed. And why that is so significant is that that means that's the deepest thing that's true of God. And it's even deeper, as we're going to discover, than his sovereignty, even though that is a very important, as we're going to see, attribution of God 
And you'll notice I didn't use the word attribute, but it is an attribution and a very important one because he absolutely is sovereign because he's the source of all things. And by right and authority and by power, he rules the universe. There's no doubt about that. The question is, is how does he choose to do that and what's the nature of the creation he created? But when God created something other than himself, obviously he would be sovereign over that. Uh, But until he did, there was only God and love. And we must understand that love is the deepest truth about God. And once we get that right, we begin to understand that when God created man, that this whole issue of him having relationship with his creatures comes in. And is he going to create them love capable? Or is he going to create them as mere automatons? Is he going to create them as puppets where he's pulling all the strings? Or is he going to give them some kind of moral freedom? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they're going to be love capable, then there's some things going back to this issue of contradiction and the rationality of God, which is shared with us, that we can clearly understand about the fact that if we're love capable, then we cannot be automatons and we cannot merely be puppets dancing at the end of a string. So I think this bears a little bit repeating. I know you said this, I think, uh, at least a couple of times, but when we think of God, and so really the first thing that we think of God and what we could say, how would you identify God? And that's love. Mm-hmm. If you're in the church and probably even in the secular world, we hear a lot of times about how we are created in God's image. Right. The Imago Day. So if the image of God is love, then are we created as a love creature? Is that the core of our nature? And that's exactly where this whole uh, foundation is laid to discuss sin and salvation. And, and because we have to understand what kind of creature is, you, is, you, is a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we love-capable creatures? Mm-hmm. Uh, John's whole point when he talks about Theos Agapeiston is that in the context of where he's doing this in his letter, he's pointing out that those who live in divine love truly bear the divine image of God and are truly born again. They're true believers. They're walking in the light. But those who do not live in divine love are stumbling around in the dark and don't know where they're going, and they're not really true believers. He says, anyone who hates his brother has not seen God or known God. And so his whole point is, this is who God is. If you're going to bear his image, and you're going to have to walk in divine love, and you're going to have to live in divine love, and that's something you're capable of. And so that was the whole point he was making. So again, we have to come back and ask this question you've asked, what kind of beings are we? Are we created love capable? Well, to say that we bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, is a very deep thing. In fact, I I t- usually take a whole semester when I was teaching in college <laughs> to define how we bear the Imago Dei and what that looks like in its original form and then how sin distorts that. We, we don't have time to go there. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that we are created love capable. And so what would be necessary for that? And I think that's where we have to start really digging into the nuts and bolts of our discussion. Right, because I think that where that leads us is if we're love capable, if, if God has given us that love nature as a capability within us that he has, mm-hmm. then there's a departure point for some, for sure, for all of us, where we can choose to accept God's nature and have that nature similar in us, or we can choose a different nature. And there you've said something that not everyone would agree with. But yes, it is. I think it's an important point. 
the point is is that if in and what you're assuming there which is is uh is that if we are love capable we have some form of freedom because love cannot be coerced you can't put somebody in a prison and then say you will love me you know i'm going to make you love me well it's cheap if you do <laughs> yeah yeah but the problem is you can't do it now you might use all kinds of techniques to make them dependent upon you. You might propagandize them. You might eventually make them think that you're the only thing in the world Mm -hmm. that they need, but you're going to be twisting their mind. But that will not really be love. That will be a form of pathology. And, and, uh, you know, so, and, and we've seen those kinds of things done. But the point is, is that love to be love has to be freely chosen, freely given, and Mm -hmm. freely received. Mm -hmm. And, and there is no other, there's no way around that. Right. Anybody who tries to define love in any other way is just playing with words. <laughs> uh, it's like Lewis said. He said, when you speak nonsense about God, it's still nonsense, you know, because the point is, is that God doesn't allow nonsense and, and irrational. And so when a person says, for example, we are totally predestined in everything we do, a, never, a word doesn't come out of your mouth, but what God causes it. Uh, which we, we would kind of, kind of uh, call kind of hyper predestinationism, uh, and then, but but we're also free moral agents. They're talking nonsense because uh, you you can't have it both ways. It's one way or the other. We are either puppets on the end of the string, or no, we are, we're not, and we have some form of freedom. The question is is how extensive is that freedom, and to and how important is it for to understand the extensiveness of that freedom. And I think that's a good point for us where we want to go back and talk about sin and what that looks like and define it a little bit. Because you're right, either we are a puppet or an automaton and we're just marching through this world because God put us here and it's like we're following a record. Right. Right. A needle on a record. Or we have the free will to make decision and make choices between what would constitute a good thing in this relationship with our creator or we can choose a different path that is a violation of that relationship. And again, to kind of uh, maybe be a little more nuanced about it, it is true that, it, let me just say this, if we are like the needle following the grooves on the record, in other words, things everything's predetermined, mm-hmm. uh, to use your illustration, then in reality, though people don't want to go there and they'll vehemently deny it, if that's your, that's determinism. Right. And determinism is not Christian. Uh, I don't care how you try to dress it up. It's not Christian. In fact, it's Manichaean. Now, that may not mean anything to most uh, of our listeners, but the word Manichaean is a, is a certain form of Gnosticism. For example, you may or may not know that Augustine was a Manichaean before he became a Christian. And Manichaeism is a form of Gnosticism that is deterministic. It's a dualistic system. There's uh, eternal good and eternal evil fighting it out, the light and the darkness. And But it's also deterministic. Everything is determined. And, of course, the early church fathers in the first centuries, all of the early church fathers wrote against Manichaean Gnosticism because they were trying to drag it into the church. And they wrote against it. And when Augustine became a Christian— for the first decades of his life, he wrote masterfully against Manichaean Gnosticism and its determinism and uh, did a very good job at it. He followed all the early church fathers because they all agree with him. And then when he got into his debates with Pelagius, uh, where he is trying to defeat the Pelagius as a 
dialectic of argument, he went back and started borrowing some of his Manichaean determinism and tried to baptize it into Christianity. And in the last decades of his life, he introduced what would become the foundation of John Calvin's theology, and that is a kind of baptized determinism which came out of Manichaeism. It's not Mm -hmm. Christian. The early church fathers, quite frankly, if Augustine had lived 200 years earlier, he probably would have gotten excommunicated for doing that. Or worse. Or worse, because they were all writing against it and saying it has nothing to do with the Christian faith. It's Gnostic. Mm-hmm. And uh, But John Calvin absolutely worshipped the, the uh, latter writings of Augustine and based all of his theology on it. Now, John, John Calvin was a fabulous theologian, a brilliant man, and he, and we have a lot that we owe to him. So let me say that right up front. And, and uh, I admire him greatly, and he was a godly man, and, and just let that be right out front. But there are some things even about his theology that he himself said uh, he struggled with deeply because what you do is if you not careful, and John kept trying to stay away from this full determinism, but he but it was always there in the rational conclusion, and he didn't like that, mm-hmm. and so he kept building all these mystery bridges trying to get back to where he knew he needed to go. He'd only say, "Well, it's a mystery. We don't know how, but somehow we're back over here." And uh, but the point is, is that if you follow determinism. God ends up being the only center in the universe. Ooh. Ooh. In other words, because <laughs> if he's causing everybody to sin and nobody can do other than what he's causing him to do, and if I'm cursing someone and he's causing me to curse someone, then he's the one causing it. He, he's the only center in the universe. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, I actually field some of those questions where where people said, well, if I sin, isn't it God's fault? Because he created <laughs> sin, he created me, yeah. and if he created, if, if I'm a sinner at birth, then... I don't have any choices. Yeah, and of course, that's down the road. We'll, we'll discuss what's being a sinner at birth mm-hmm. is all about. But but you're right. If we make God, if we if our view of God is that his sovereignty is, is a dictatorial determinism, then, of course, God becomes the only sinner in the universe because he, in fact, even Calvin went so far as to say that man fell freely, but God determined that he should fall. Now, he's talking nonsense when he says that, and he should admit it. The point is you can't say that man fell freely, but God predetermined that he should fall. If God predetermined that he should fall, he didn't fall freely. Yeah. And if he fell freely, he wasn't predetermined to fall. So the, the point is, is that God did predetermine that the fall would be possible. And we're going to find out the reason for that is back to our original discussion, love. Mm-hmm. You see, God didn't take a risk for himself because he's never at risk, uh, but it, there is a risk for us, and he was willing to take that risk, and that is is that for us to be love-capable, we must have a certain level of free moral agency. Now, we are free, but we are not infinitely free. This is where people get off the road. Uh, we, we, we react against determinism. We go all the way over to you know total libertarianism, where we can just choose anything we want to choose. No, man was not given infinite freedom. We are given a limited freedom, but that limited freedom is actual and it is consequential. And what we mean by that is that we have enough moral freedom to make real choices between real alternatives with real consequences attached to them. And many of those consequences are not only temporal, but eternal. 
And so we must understand that we've been given real moral freedom. And this is the foundation upon which all through the Bible and through the Old Testament that God approaches man. He's always saying to man, do right, make the choice to do right, mm-hmm. you know, relate to me in the right way. If man did not have that capability and God were wasting his breath saying that, we've wasted most of the whole Bible because that's what he <laughs> says constantly to them. You know, you have the power to do right, choose it. Now, that's another whole discussion as time moves on because we have to solve the problem of why people don't do right and the fact that they are sinners and what that means. But And that's, that will get us into soteriology and also homartiology. But the point is, is that we were made love capable, and that means we have moral freedom, which means we have, ooh, moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. Therefore, every person is responsible to God, and every person will be judged by God, and then they'll be judged for what? About what they chose to do. There is no basis for judgment if if God caused you to do everything, who's he going to be judging himself? Right. This is ridiculous. Right. You know, it makes no sense. We've distorted the whole context and matrix of the Bible. So we're going to move forward with the assumption that we have the right to choose, that there is no determination about our choice, I think. Well, there is some determination. Yeah. In other words, there's there's boundaries. To God's sovereign right, right, right. sovereign will does create but boundaries. The, the right to choose whether or not we do what God would have us do and have the right, right relationship or if we would not. So that brings us to an important question. That is, what is sin? To stay with our foundation about the God mm-hmm. that uh, who created us and who made us in his image and is doing the saving ultimately— we must understand he made us love capable, and therefore we are supposed to have a love relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Sin is, first of all, a violation of our freedom, and it's a misuse of freedom. That's where sin originates, and it's only possible because we have freedom of will and therefore can abuse that freedom. Secondly, it is a, it is a sin against the love of God. It is, a re, it is a turning from God. The first sin has to do with violating God's love and God's trust because those two always go together. You can't have love without trust. You can't have trust without love, uh, really in the deepest sense. And so what Adam and Eve do is they turn from trusting God, as the serpent said, trust yourself and make up your own mind. And in doing that, they also turn from loving God to self-love. I will choose to give my highest allegiance to myself which is a form of love, and therefore the first sin, and I think John Wesley got this right, the first sin is not pride. The first sin is self-idolatry. Man has substituted himself for God and turned to himself, said, I will give my affection to myself, and I will give preference to myself, and I will trust myself instead of God. That results, of course, in pride, which infects the whole human race. And pride turns us inward, makes us self-autonomous, attempted self-sufficiency. It makes us all, uh, we are not what God created us to be, beings open to His, him and relationship and a relationship of love. We have violated the love relationship, and that's the first essence of sin. And we did that by violating trust. And so we no longer have a, and we are born with a suspicion in our hearts deep inside and many people who've been raised in the church may not sense that suspicion so much, and hopefully it's been taken care of by grace. But the point is we're all born with a certain amount of suspicion toward God 
This is why people struggle to surrender certain aspects of their life to God, even after they become Christians. There is this latent suspicion that the fall has put in there that turned us inward, and we want to trust ourselves in our own assessment rather than trust God in his assessment, especially when he says you got to die to to your allegiance here and you got to die to yourself and so on. That doesn't we get a little suspicious about that until we really begin to understand what it means. Are there different types of sin, I guess is the question. So we all recognize I think intentional sin. Mm-hmm. Or even habitual sin or those types of sins. But what about, you know, sinning by accident or you didn't know it was a sin at the time or it was totally unplanned and it just accidentally happened? Yeah. I mean, are these big deals? I mean, yeah. and how do we deal with that? Okay, so you're moving us immediately, and I guess this is probably just as good a time as any, on over towards soteriology by moving us through what we call harmartiology, the study of sin, what is sin. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that now, because you've, you've raised some very good questions, and probably questions that have been asked much by people who listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. The first thing we need to understand is that sin is twofold in its nature. Now, what do we mean by that statement? Simply this, sin is a condition that we are born with, that we inherited from Adam, and sin is also, we use that term to describe the actions or the fruit that comes out of that nature. It's some these things we do that are contrary to the will of God. It's things we do that violate the love of God. It's things we do that validate the self and basically, in a sense, lift our fists to God and say, I'll do as I please, thank you very much. So sins are actions, but they it, but the deeper root is that sin is a self-sovereignty nature that we are born with. We inherited from Adam that says, I'm in charge and that I'm seeking to be self-sufficient. I'll provide my own identity. I'll provide my own security. I'll find my own way forward. I'll decide what's right for me and what's wrong for me. And in our world, we're believing that lie very deeply. You can decide for yourself and be God yourself. The lie, as Paul predicted in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is deeply believed in our culture today. And that's the lie that was told in the garden. You can be as God deciding good and evil for yourself. And so sin is, in a sense, self-idolatry at the root. It is that form of pride which puts us in the driver's seat. And then out of that comes actions of sin. Now... We have to do a lot of defining to define what are sins that are accountable sins, and because all people sin, obviously, mm-hmm. and even Christians sin, but in what sense? And that's what we need to discuss. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so are we culpable for all sin or only those that we intend to do? Well, let me just start off by saying this. We all need the blood of Christ and the atonement for all sin, mm-hmm. regardless And all of us, therefore, need the atonement. Some people say, well, you know, I came into the world, I was fallen, Adam did something, and now I'm the victim of it, so why am I suffering? Well, the point is this, because Paul makes it clear you validated that yourself by being what you are and by your choices. Paul said, you know, sin entered the world and death by sin, and therefore death came upon all men because all sin. In other words... It's not that Adam sinned alone and death came into the world, but because of death and because we're all born severed from God and separated from God, that's our condition, we all sin. In other words, we all have a self-will. Now, you may 
And we exert that self-will even before we come to the age of what we might call a moral accountability, though we don't know exactly when that age is. It's different probably in each child Mm -hmm. and each person. But the point is you don't have to teach a two-year-old to stamp his foot and scream mine or no because that's what they are. That's who they are. They have this severed nature, this self-autonomous nature. I'm going to do as I please, and uh, you don't have to teach them that. They, they, they know that automatically. In fact, you have to discipline them to try to keep that from growing so it consumes them. And so we are all sinners by nature, and we validate that even before we come to the place where we can, uh, we might say, uh, validate it by conscious intention. Okay. But we still have, and, and that means that we do things even before we're at the age of accountability, which puts us in what we would call the general area of sin, which is the word harmartia, which means we just miss the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. Everybody that comes into this world, our behavior falls short of the glory of God. Uh, and that's why we're sinners. Now, we're going to see that there's something much more specific we have to deal with in the area of sin. And that uh, is described by another word in Scripture, and it's called anomia. Mm-hmm. And that is intentional, willful, conscious sin, where I kind of shake my fist in God's face, so to speak, and say, I know you want me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. Or you don't want me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. In other words, that is sins of rebellion. All, and John says, all rebellion is sin. Uh, and it's interesting that John uses these words in very nuanced ways in his first letter, his first epistle, as he talks about there's a sin that doesn't lead to death, but there is sin that does lead to death. And we don't have time to unpack that right now. But the point is he's talking about this distinction between uh, sins that are pervasive among the, the human race because mm-hmm. we're all fallen, the fact of our fallenness, but there is sin that is intentional it is rebellious, it is conscious, and that should not be part of a Christian's life. And that's why John could say, he that sinneth is of the devil. In other words, people who live consciously shaking their fists in God's face saying, I'll go my own way, he says, they're not even believers. They're of their father, the devil. He says, and then he goes on to say that a, a believer cannot sin because he's born of God. And and the tense there is cannot continue to live, and it means not to continue to live a life of sin. In other words, they're not going to do that because they have God in them, and he's obviously going to give them a different kind of nature. And I think in some cases, for some of these things, God's inherently given us something internal to tell us, even before you're a believer, that it lets you know that what you're doing isn't right. In mm-hmm. these intentional things like lying, stealing, murdering, I mean, unless you have some sort of psychosis, then you know what I just did was wrong. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a believer. I mean, there's guilt, there's, you know, you hide it. I mean, you know that what I just did was not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think that God give us that internally at birth that we would be able to identify those things that are those shaking the fist type things. That's what we call, uh, it's one of the characteristics of our spiritual nature, which is conscience. Mm-hmm. And conscience is a, if we define it, it is a capacity to detect our moral responsibility to God and to other moral Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what conscience is. But notice I use the word capacity. Right. It's a capacity. But that capacity has to be filled with something. Now, 
the Bible says that it has all, everyone's capacities filled with a little bit of knowledge of right and wrong, because it says there is a light that lighteth every person that comes into the world. In other words, there's a certain basic level of morality that everybody knows, like you were referring to, is right and wrong, and we all sense guilt when we do certain things, and we all sense there's things we ought to do, and when we don't do it, we sense guilt. So uh, that's that's basic. But there is, but we live in darkness. We are sinners, and we need our consciences illuminated. And one of the first things that happens when a person becomes a believer is that their conscience gets illuminated through the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit, and suddenly things that they used to think were okay, they go, whoa, wait a minute, I shouldn't be doing that. That that grieves the heart of God. Uh, and there's other things that they never thought that should be a part of their life, and suddenly they say, yeah, this should become a part of my life. I should start doing these things because they please God, and they help me to become the person he wants me to be. And and helps me to serve others and so on. So the conscience needs illumination. Uh, if the conscience is darkened and actually uh, it can be seared, the Bible talks about people's consciences being seared, which means it can literally be distorted. People can conscientiously, in some cultures where the darkness is very deep, do things and and feel conscientiously justified that are bizarre and very wicked, but mm-hmm. it's because of a distortion and a darkening and a searing of the conscience by sometimes false religions. So, for example, if you have a religion that says that it is a great meritorious thing if you kill a, quote, infidel right. and blow yourself up doing it, uh, that conscience has been violated and seared by the pounding of a religious indoctrination, which makes it incapable of understanding that what I'm about to do is grievously wrong, even though there may be a little voice back there somewhere saying, I don't know, but they're justifying it by all this. Yeah, we see the same thing with people that have suffered great traumas as well. Yes, exactly. So as we look at sin, we have to look at it as nature, Mm -hmm. which we all have inherited from Adam, but we have to look at it as actions. And when we do that, we have to divide it up into a couple categories. And so, first of all, let's, and the easiest way to talk about this is probably to talk about, uh, to put it in kind of what I don't say lower shelf terms, let's talk about what we call the legal definition of sin okay, and the ethical definition of sin. Okay. Yeah, because I, I think that's what a lot of people have been looking for is this, is the legal definition. And quite honestly, I think most probably aren't even conscious of the ethical question yeah. because people that are brought up in the church or or brought up in a home that is a Christian home, they hear their whole life about sin, but they don't necessarily always get a good definition of, say, well, how do I know if I'm sinning? Right. And, and that'll bring up also the question, and we'll save it for a little further down, and that is, how do I know when I've crossed the line between temptation and sin? Okay. Yes. In other words, when has a temptation ceased to be just a temptation and I've actually sinned? And it isn't, doesn't mean that I've committed the act, that there's a, there's a line much before that. Mm-hmm. But the point is, let's start off with the legal definition of sin. Now, the legal definition of sin is what we would call the broader definition of sin. And the broader definition of sin is very comprehensive, it's very valid, and it's very biblical, and it's based on kind of the word harmartia, and maybe explaining that. The legal definition of sin basically means just any act, any violation of the or want of conformity to the perfect will of God. That's really kind of what 
uh, the legal definition means. So if anyone in any way falls short of the glory of God, falls short of the perfect uh, you know, will of God, that's sin. So in that, by that definition, we're all sinners. Mm-hmm. There isn't anybody who doesn't fall into that category. Now, this comes from the word hermartia, which uh, is a Greek word, but it is interesting how the Romans gave it and used it. They took that word and used it, and this illustration really drives something very important home. The Romans and their armies had uh, large engines of war, uh, big catapults and battering rams and things. And sometimes these things were absolutely massive. They had to be pulled by huge teams of horses or oxen, uh, sometimes in, assisted even by you know massive regiments of soldiers to get these things there. Uh, these big uh, wooden contraptions, we might say, of war, uh, weighed tons. And to get them across very, very rough terrain, which they often had to, there wasn't always roads, there often were, but there weren't always. To get them across terrain, they had to put massive wheels on them. Because as you know, small wheels go down on a pothole and you're stuck. But if you've got massive wheels, you just roll right over it. So they had wheels that were sometimes 10 feet in diameter. These mm. are massive wheels. And they were solid wooden wheels. They made the wheels solid. Now, these, uh, these engines of war weighed tons, and you needed bearings for these wheels. The problem was they didn't have any ball bearings or anything like that. So what did they do for bearings? Well, they used basically wooden uh, shafts to put the wheels on and pin them on with, with wooden, uh, usually it could have been uh, iron, but they usually used wooden pegs. But the point is, the way they made a bearing is they would take uh, leather, uh, some kind of animal skin. They would soak it in some kind of oil or fat. Mm -hmm. And then they would wrap this soaked uh, axle in all this animal skin leather that was soaked in this fat or oil. And then they would put the wheel on over it and pin it on. Now, that would last as a bearing for a day's march. In other words, uh, it worked pretty good, but it would soon dry out and the wheels would hardly get where you could hardly turn them. So every evening in the encampment, there was a regiment of soldiers whose job it was, was to use large levers and fulcrums to lift these big engines and to take and block them up and take the wheels off of them and redress the axles. That's That was their job so that the next day, you know, we could start the march again. Well, interestingly, this is where this story of Harmartia takes us. Interestingly, the archers discovered that while they had these four wheels off of this thing, they could make good use of them. So they would take these big 10-foot round wheels that had a little hole in the middle for an axle, the rest of it's solid, Mm -hmm. and they would put one out here, you know, maybe 20 yards, and they would put another one maybe, you know, 20 yards behind that and another one and another one. And the whole idea is they would line them up so you could look right straight through the center hole and they would all line up. And then they would have their archery contest. And what they would do is say, here's what you got to do. You win if you can make an arrow fly through all four holes without hitting a wheel. Now, as you know, an arrow from a bow will always start descending the minute it leaves the bow because Mm -hmm. it's starting to lose energy. So 
to be a very good archer, first of all, you had to shoot a very powerful bow. Secondly, you had to be very steady, and you had to hit the opening of the first wheel at the very top without hitting it. And as the arrow slowly descended through, it had to pass through each one, and it had to have enough left not to hit the bottom of the opening in the last, the fourth wheel. And if you did not make it through, if you hit any one of the wheels, they, they would just say, Hamartia, you missed. In other words, if you aren't absolutely perfect, you don't get a score. Hmm. So you can imagine that was a very difficult thing to, to do. And so that's the meaning, though, of that term. It means if you are, aren't absolutely perfect, you, you miss it. And so that, the Bible uses that term to describe our general sinfulness, and it is the comprehensive term for sin. That's why we call the study of sin harmartiology, because that's the meaning of the term. However, within that context, it is very clear that the Scripture talks about something else, and that is more than our this broad area of sin, which can be either conscious or unconscious. But there is within Harmartia this other area of sin, which is normally kind of designated by the word anomia. Now, the word anomia, as I said, means this intentional, conscious, rebellious act of sin. And the question becomes, when the Bible tells us not to sin, which is it referring to? Okay? So uh, the ethical definition of sin could be basically given, and I guess we could use Wesley's clip phrase, it basically means it's the willful violation of a known law of God. So notice it first of all, has to be willful. And secondly, it has to be known. Knowledge comes into it for there to be accountable sin. He's not saying that there's no other form of sin, but he's saying accountable sin is willful, and it, it is something you know you shouldn't do or something you should do, and you go contrary to that knowledge. And so uh, when you look at those two definitions, you know, anything that misses the absolute perfect will of God, which is the broader definition, very valid, and then this narrower definition, which is ethical, which has to do with me making a decision to say to God, I'll do as I please, I don't care what you say, then, yeah, these obviously are two different things. And the one, the smaller one, anomia, can also be in the area of Hamartia, because Hamartia would cover all of that, because that would also miss the perfect will of God, obviously. But it, which does the Bible have in view when it talks about, for example, let's take a verse of Scripture. Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. Mm-hmm. He says to him when he finds him later, go and sin no more, lest something worse should come upon you. Now, let's just ask ourselves, which definition of sin did Jesus have in mind? Because if he had the harmartia in mind, the general broad legal definition, uh, what did he just do? He just cursed the man. It's hopeless. He just cursed the man. He just said, something worse is going to come on you. Because if he said to him, never go and and fall short of the perfect, absolute, perfect will of God ever again, or something worse is going to come upon you, that man should have run away screaming because there is no hope of him being able to do that. But if Jesus had the ethical definition in mind, do not willfully and intentionally violate the known will of God, 
That's something that by the grace of God we're all capable of doing. And that's what Jesus was calling him to. He said, don't become a willful sinner. Uh, Willfully change your lifestyle. Decide to try to follow God's way. And and as a result, something worse won't come on you. But if you don't, something worse may come on you. And so that is possible by God's grace. The other one, no one, even by the grace of God in this life, could fulfill because we all still make mistakes that fall short of the perfect will Mm -hmm. of God. We all still sin sometimes against other believers or other people, and it may be unintentional until we discover it and we need to take responsibility for it. But the point is, is that if Jesus had meant the first, it it, it, it makes the scriptures just, you know, ridiculously incapable of being understood. If he meant the second, obviously that's something that is a rational call to all of us. Uh, and we and it's interesting that there's about 41 places in the New Testament where the verb tense to sin or to commit an act of sin appears. And in every one of those, if you substitute the legal definition, go and never once again deviate at any point from the absolute perfect will of God, you'll discover that it makes nonsense out of almost all those passages. Uh, but if you use the ethical definition, go and never intentionally and willfully violate the known law of God, you'll discover it makes perfect sense. There are a couple of passages where both will fit, but even in those passages, the ethical makes more sense because it's the point being made. Don't be a, don't willfully violate God's law. So it's pretty clear that it's important uh, to make that distinction because if we don't make that distinction, then we we see that there is, and and we see that there's a consequence to this, JD, and the JD, and and that is this, that if we make everything sin, in a sense, we make nothing sin. In other words, if we hmm. basically say, well, there's nothing we can do, uh, everything is sin, and we're, and it's all, you know, it's all sin. Therefore, you know, as I've actually heard some people say, kind of, a kind of an antinomianism, which is, you know, you can uh, sin and not have to worry about it. Uh, the idea then is, is oh, well, uh, you know, do the ones you enjoy because you're going, you know, the blood of Christ is going to cover it. You need to ask forgiveness <laughs> anyway, you know, because there's no way you can avoid sin. So just do the ones you enjoy. Well, that, that, and of course, no true believer would actually say that, but that's that's ridiculous. But that's that's a logical conclusion. But if the real definition is don't willfully violate the known law of God, then by the grace of God, we seek to live that way. And that's what John says a true believer does, because a true believer, he says, cannot sin in that sense, continually living life of sin, because they've been born of God. And so that's what's so important. So is there another distinction for Christians who may be still living in Romans 6? Is there like maybe a period of grace? Is there a certain point where their salvation becomes lost because they've been in it too long? <laughs> oh, you're going to raise the whole idea of can we lose our salvation? Oh, oh, oh please, we don't, have, we, don't, we don't have time <laughs> We're not for ready that. for that one today. We're not ready for but that today. I, I mean, what my question is, though, is if someone in Romans 6 is still perhaps willfully sinning against God, but it's not their desire, they're still wrestling with the process of surrendering to God. Well, you might say really that's Romans 6 and 7. Seven's where Paul describes the fact that I, I want to do the good, but I can't. I don't want to do the evil, but I do. And that's where he's saying there's a slavery. It's And he says, it's not I that's doing this. 
It's the sin dwelling in me that doesn't. He points to a sinful nature, a condition that causes him to be that way. And he's saying, it's not I. Now, the question is, is how could he say it's not I? Well, because he's, and actually he uses the term, it is no longer I. Well, you couldn't say that unless at one time it was I. So what he's saying is, there's been a change in me. What change? Well, the change is that he's come to salvation, but he's still struggling with this power of sin issue. And that's what Paul had described in the sixth chapter. And you need to, and, and he always points everybody back to their conversion. Don't you realize that when you were saved and when you were baptized into Jesus Christ, that you were baptized into his death, and you need to therefore count yourself dead to the sin, the particular articles there in the Greek, the sin, the nature of sin, uh, and alive unto God. And that, that's, that's a, such an important thing because bel- there are many believers who get their sins forgiven and get saved, and if they truly become a follower of Christ, still have not come to the place that they are uh, knowledgeably reckoning themselves dead unto that power of sin and living in the victory that God's made available. And God doesn't sanctify us in the dark. We have to be brought to a place where we knowledgeably trust what God has provided. Christ provided not only for you to be forgiven, he provided for you, the sinner, to be put to death and resurrected as a new person who can actually live by grace and obey God. And there's some Christians who yet need to be pointed back to that and say, you're not, you're not believing this and you're not appropriating that. And, and that's part of our sanctification and part of the sanctification process. And uh, for some, that becomes like a crisis where they truly die to a, a deeper form of self-sovereignty and really come, you know, because they're dealing more with the nature of sin itself. And, uh, and therefore, the Holy Spirit has, has to bring them to a place where they, by believing what the gospel says, they believe not only is my sin forgiven, but I actually died uh, as a sinner, and I've come alive as a new creation person who can actually obey God by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of where we are. No, I, I think that was a good, and, and I thank you, uh, Grant, for asking that, because David in Tampa asked the, a very similar question is, as a Christian, how do I overcome my sin? And I think that you you kind of talked about that. Yeah. Well, we're always pointed back to one thing, and that is that in the cross of Christ, our sin is dealt with not only in the sins that are paid for, but in the sinner that's put to death, and then with Christ resurrected with him to be a new creation person. And that's so important because many believers are not living in the reality of what God has provided, the full reality. They've accepted forgiveness. They're all happy about that. But then they do not really stop and think about it. And that's why Paul says to the Romans, stop and think about this. Can you go on living in sin? God forbid. Meganoite is his term. It means perish the thought. This That's ridiculous. Don't don't let that happen at all. We died to sin. In other words, now he's talking about something deeper than forgiveness. We died to the sin, the very power of sin. How could we possibly go on living in it? But a lot of believers, uh, he gets down to verse 11, says, reckon yourself. Write it down in your account book. You're dead to the sin, and you're alive to God. Many believers have never done that. Yeah, there's a desire amongst many to hold on to something of the old life while trying to commit to God and the death of their sin. 
but maybe not all. And I know sitting through some of your classes that we talk about strongholds and these things, and, mm-hmm. and that's a whole deep discussion. But I think we've come to a point where we can close today because I think the next thing that we can talk about is what God's reaction to sin was. What was his response? Yes. And we can start there next time, I think. Yeah. What is his response? And then what, what does redemption actually do in responding to what sin is and mm-hmm. the reality of sin? Yeah. So I, I just want to thank you for coming and talking to us today about this important topic because there is a lot of confusion with people out there, and I, and I think that we can clear some of that up and answer a lot of questions. So I, I greatly appreciate you coming and talking to about it. Yeah, well, we kind of laid the groundwork today, J.D. Yeah, we did. <laughs> okay, all right. So this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we've been talking with Pastor Gary Durham about God, his nature, man, and our nature, and sin. So if you would, please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Gary, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day.